You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about newborn screening. Joining me is Dr. Rebecca Ahrens-Nicholas, a senior research scientist and attending physician with the Metabolic Disease Program and the Division of Human Genetics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So thank you so much for joining me today. Sure, happy to be here. So I see a lot of newborn screens every day, but I probably don't know a lot of the background behind it. So Let us know, um, to give some history, when did we start doing universal newborn screening and why did we do it? Yeah, so it's really been a process that's evolved over the past 50 years or so. So back in the 1960s, actually, um, a man named Robert Guthrie came up with a way to detect a disease called PKU, or Mm -hmm. phenylketonuria, um, a disorder which, if left untreated, children develop really bad intellectual disability and seizures and neurologic outcomes. Right. And he realized that just from a single drop of blood, he could see whether or not a child has PKU. Mm-hmm. And he re- also realized from the recent literature that had come out in the 60s that if you started treatment for this disease early, kids would develop normally and have great outcomes. Right. So he pushed really hard to, for the implementation of newborn screening for this disease. And after a lot of manufacturing processes and things such as this, he got the cost down for testing so that it actually became feasible. So in the mid-1960s is really when newborn screening was first initiated in in different states within the United States, mostly for PKU at the time. Which is why we call it the PKU screen. We still get called very often for (laughs) abnormalities on the PKU screen that have nothing to do with PKU. But it was a really important public health measure. Um, And it was sort of the perfect disease to start with because it's something that you could identify cheaply Mm -hmm. through testing. And then if you did something about early by starting a a restrictive diet in these patients, they did great. And so it was really both cost effective, patients were happy, Mm -hmm. and and really it was the perfect newborn screening disorder. Um, After that, screening sort of expanded as the technology became available. The next big disorder that was screened for was um, congenital hypothyroidism. Mm -hmm. Again, a disorder that if you do something about early, you really can have great outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, So for a long time, those were sort of the big disorders that were screened for. Um, And one by one, more diseases were added. Mm -hmm. Um, Really up until about the 1990s, when new technology became available called uh, tandem mass spectrometry, Mm -hmm. that became, really, you could screen for dozens of disorders simultaneously, and that Mm -hmm. entirely changed newborn screening. Mm -hmm. So the number of of disorders that were screened from skyrocketed throughout the 90s. Okay. It seems like there would be scientists who would campaign to get their disease onto newborn screening. Is that that something that you see happening? It is. To get a disease on the newborn screening list is actually very tricky, and it's a regulated process now. Really, since the mid-2000s, this has become a very regulated process. Mm -hmm. Um, And the idea behind it is that there's bioethicists have come up with a list of criteria for which a a disorder should be screened for. Mm -hmm. And this is generally accepted, but of course there's debate in the literature about this and, and debate amongst professionals. But the idea really is that the disorder has to have a test that's specific and sensitive, so something you can pick up, a disorder where a physician just looking at a baby wouldn't be able to tell that the baby is affected, and again, a disorder that has a treatment available, that if you initiate that treatment, you can make a difference early on. Mm -hmm. So 
these disorders um, are obviously a lot of different scientists who work on these disorders or clinicians who have interests in them um, do really try to push their disease on to the recommended uniform screening panel, mm -hmm. which we can talk about in a minute. Um, but they really should meet those criteria. A lot of times family foundations um, and advocacy groups push hard if they feel that their diagnosis meets those criteria to get them on. So we know that state to state, the diseases that are included aren't necessarily the same. So why is there variability between states in which diseases are included? Yeah. So it goes again to a little bit about the guidance that the federal government provides about what should be screened for. But in the end, each state has the right to implement whatever they do or do not want. Okay. Um, so the way that, that disorders are chosen at the federal level is something called the Recommended Uniform Screening Panel. Okay. And conditions can be nominated and then undergo a review, a review process by people in the public, physicians, scientists, to sort of provide evidence about whether or not something should be on this list. Mm -hmm. Then this list is made and, and, and the disorder is officially added to this list, and each state can decide whether or not they want to adopt that to their state screening panel. Okay. And some of that is uh, based on, on budget, and some of that is based on the population within that state or right. what their resources are being allocated to. Right. There are also some states that have pilot programs or even add disorders that are not on the uniform screening panel mm. um, to their own states for, for whatever reason, whether it be an advocacy group in that state has pushed for that or um, another reason. Um, so you can have state-to-state -state variability um, in what disorders are covered. Mm -hmm. And you also have state-to-state -state variability in how they do the testing. Hmm. Um, so there's differences depending on where you live and where you're born. Okay. So what diseases, or give us some examples of diseases that are universally screened for? Yeah, so I mean, PKU is sort of the yeah. biggest the biggest historical one, but obviously we've moved much beyond that now. Um, so the categories of diseases that are screened for are metabolic diseases, which mm -hmm. is obviously something I care about. Um, and so a lot of different fatty acid oxidation defects, organic acidemias, galactosemia, mm -hmm. PKU, tyrosinemia, these are all screened for. In addition, you have screening for things like... Um, congenital hypothyroidism, mm -hmm. you have complex congenital heart disease screening now mm -hmm. based on pulse oximetry. Mm -hmm. uh, technically, the hearing testing that's done on all mm -hmm. babies is part of uniform um, newborn screening. Mm -hmm. um, you also have disorders such as hemoglobinopathies that are right. screened for, or G6PD. Mm -hmm. um, so it really spans the gamut. Cystic fibrosis also is now being yeah. screened for pretty universally. Mm -hmm. um, and so really... What started out as one rare disorder in PKU has spread to a variety of different organ systems and subspecialists, um, and really the uniform feature of all of these diseases is that you can do something about them if right. you start treatment early. Great. So help us understand the ideal timing for doing this test. Are there certain things that can make the test invalid? And if it's not done in the newborn period, kind of how old can you be and still run the test? Yeah. So the tests are all designed to have norms based on neonates, okay. really. And the ideal timing of the test is 24 to about 48 hours of life. Okay. And it varies a little from state to state. Mm -hmm. um, you do send repeat specimens, obviously, beyond that mm -hmm. period. And some states actually have a two-screen process where you send a screen during those that 24 to 48-hour period and then mm -hmm. a second screen at a week or two of life. Okay. But in general, once you hit about a month, those mm -hmm. norms are just really no longer valid. Okay. Um, each state, again, has a little bit different policy on that. Right. Um, and a lot of things can make the test difficult to interpret, um, obviously sending at the wrong time. Right. Um, so a lot of times babies that are born in the ICU setting get a screen sent right after birth, right. so in a couple hours of life. 
but that test needs to be repeated during the proper testing window in order to really understand what's going on with that child. Um, and then there's things that can give you false results. So if a baby is on TPN, uh -huh. um, an extremely low birth weight, extremely premature baby can uh -huh. have differences, especially with how their body metabolizes tyrosine. Uh -huh. um, so there's a lot of things that can give you some false readings um, if you have a blood transfusion right. immediately before sending the sample, things like that. Okay. So in those cases, in maybe the NICU baby, or someone who had a blood transfusion, would you then recommend repeating it yeah. in that first month? Yeah, so it's not just a matter of what I recommend. There's actually, each state has its own procedures for this. Mm -hmm. And so reading the newborn screening testing result is actually one of the most useful things <laughs> that you can do because there's a lot of words on it, but at the right. very bottom, they will tell you what to do. They'll right. tell you if the specimen is invalid and you need a repeat and what the window should be for repeat. Right. So every state has very standardized operating procedures that, you know, if the newborn screening card sends the babies on TPN, they'll actually note that in their report very often, things like this. Or if it's sent at the wrong time, they'll say this screen was sent too early, please send a repeat. Mm -hmm. Great. So read the fine print. Read the book. fine print. <laughs> yes, it is your, your most helpful thing. So um, sometimes we'll see inconclusive uh, coming back on the newborn screens. So when we see that in primary cares, oftentimes, you know, the baby is a week old at mm -hmm. this point. What should we be doing? Read the fine print. Okay, read so the it will tell you exactly what to do. Great. So if it's inconclusive and you just need to repeat filter specimen, it'll say that on the screen. Great. If it's gotten to a point where it's been inconclusive too many times, mm -hmm. it'll say recommend referral to a metabolic physician. Great. Um, so if you have a clinical suspicion, if something is going on and you have an inconclusive newborn screen, mm -hmm. I would say call a metabolic physician. Right. But if the baby looks absolutely fine and it just says inconclusive, I would follow the directions on the newborn screening report. Great. So some of the conditions screened for, such as maple syrup, urine disease, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, and uh, galactosemia require more immediate evaluation and treatment. So because these are so time sensitive, how are families notified about this um, when they get a positive newborn screen? It can vary. Um, it depends sort of on when the result comes back. So the newborn screening labs, especially Pennsylvania and New Jersey, where we get most of our referrals, mm -hmm. work 24-7. Mm -hmm. So results are coming off the machine in the middle of the night, on weekends, and there is an on-call person in those facilities mm -hmm. that if one of these highly abnormal uh, test results come back for mm -hmm. one of these severe disorders, they call the newborn screening referral program in the okay. middle of the night and in that case it, it is actually one of the fellows mm -hmm. uh, here at CHOP that gets that phone call. Okay. They often try to reach out to the primary care office at the same time so mm -hmm. that both providers are aware. Great. And so what ends up happening most of the time is that we try to partner with the primary care provider caring for that patient or caring for that family mm -hmm. um, in trying to identify where that baby is in the mm -hmm. middle of the night or on the weekend right. and get them referred into our emergency room urgently. Okay. Um, it's, you know, it's not always a perfect system. Sometimes a baby was just discharged from the, the, the hospital and hasn't even seen the primary care right. provider yet. Right. But any help we can get from the pediatrician's office in mm -hmm. identifying a family member is very, very helpful. Because mm -hmm. sometimes the phone number provided to the state lab is incorrect, and we right. end up having to try to you know, use the internet to find these families. Right. So sometimes it, it can be complicated, but we work very closely with our primary care partners. Because it's a very alarming phone call, I'm sure, as a parent to get mm -hmm. that your healthy, beautiful baby has something very wrong with them, right. or may have something very wrong with them. And right. so 
it's nice if that message that you need to go to the hospital comes from a physician that they know mm-hmm. rather than a stranger. Right. So we try to work closely with the primary care doctors. Right. No offense, but no one wants their first call to be from you. <laughs> no. We, absolutely not. You do not want to get a phone call from our group in the middle of the night. Right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Not a good phone call. Not but a good, no. It's good to hear that you guys partner with primary yes. care so that we also are in the loop because yes. even though we aren't going to manage their maple syrup urine disease, yes. we're happy to know that they have it and yeah. what the plan is. And the Correct. family is getting the appropriate care. So. Yes. Um, there's always the potential for false negatives. So this may falsely reassure the pediatrician and later on lead to a delay in diagnosis. So yeah. how often does this happen? It really depends on the disorder. Right. Um, screening is great for, I mean, it's, overall, it's a great public health program, but it's more robust for certain diseases than other mm-hmm. others. For example, PKU. It's a wonderful test to, develop, to pick up PKU. Mm-hmm. However, for some other disorders, there might be mild forms of the disease that are actually missed on newborn screening. Okay. And the one big category of diseases that we think about a lot are fatty acid oxidation defects. So okay. some of the long chain fatty acid oxidation defects in the mild forms, you don't really see symptoms unless you're stressed. Mm-hmm. And if a baby's had a really easy delivery and is feeding well, you might not yeah. actually appreciate on a test that that is abnormal. Okay. So the important thing to remember is that as a primary care doctor, if you have concerns about your patient, if their newborn screen is normal, that doesn't mean that all metabolic diseases are ruled out right. and that you should still have a healthy sense of suspicion um, and refer for evaluation if you are worried about it. But in general, it does a very good job of picking up most disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, the other big category I should say that doesn't always pick up are urea cycle defects. Okay. So some common forms, or more relatively common forms of urea cycle defects can be missed on newborn screen. Great. So don't let it completely reassure you if you're Correct. clinically If you have a clinical suspicion, yes. pursue the workup. Absolutely. Great. So while some diagnoses lead to the urgent referral that we just talked about, others can be managed in primary care. So if we have a positive result, but we're not sure exactly how to interpret it, where should we go for more information um, to learn about a particular disease and what to counsel the family about? Yeah, so some of it depends a little bit on the disorder that is screened positive for, whether or not it's something like cystic fibrosis versus a metabolic disease. But in general, a really good first place to start is the American College of Medical Genetics Mm -hmm. have made something called the ACT sheets or the ACT algorithms. Um, And so what these are is that it's a one-page summary of the disease, of the marker that's abnormal on the newborn screen Mm -hmm. and what disease might possibly be associated with it. And then there's an associated algorithm that tells you what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's a metabolic disease that needs an urgent referral, it will clearly say, call a metabolic physician. Um, if it's something else, it will. all the instructions are there for you. There's also a really nice um, group of information pages from the, something called the New England Metabolic Consortium okay. that, again, sort of has a one-page summary of a lot of these diseases that gives you an idea of what the disease is and what to worry about. Okay. But again, in terms of next best steps for that screen, mm-hmm. again, look at the bottom of the, of the screening report. It'll okay. really tell you what needs to happen next. Great. And we know that at CHOP, we can always reach out yeah, to absolutely. Our you can always call us. Yes. Genetics, so. yes. Um, okay. So, how successful has newborn screening been in reducing morbidity and mortality from these diseases? And I've also, on the side note, I heard that some people attribute some of the decrease in SIDS um, cases to the newborn screening programs that are picking up some of these yeah. conditions that we might have otherwise not picked up in the past. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so it's been incredibly successful. And again, it varies a little by diagnoses, but mm -hmm. the, the case that you're talking about with SIDS, one of the big disorders that is um, a true, a lot of people think is one of the big successes of newborn screening is screening for something called MCAD. Mm -hmm. So it's a medium chain fatty acid oxidation defect. And these kids do absolutely beautifully with total normal development and mm -hmm. cognitive outcomes and everything is great as long as they don't fast as right. young infants and as children. Right. And so a lot of people think that a lot of the historic cases of SIDS were actually children with MCAD mm -hmm. that during their first viral illness or gastroenteritis mm -hmm. right. got behind on top on, in terms of their PO intake and ended up becoming hypoglycemic mm -hmm. in the middle of the night and, and dying right. suddenly. Right. Um, and so the timing of the decrease in SIDS deaths does mm -hmm. overlap with the timing of implementation of sort of this widespread newborn screening mm -hmm. for things like MCAD. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people have said they think that this is decreasing that rate. Is um, MCAD part of the universal screening? So it is. It's on the recommended universal screening mm -hmm. panel. I think all states in the United States screen for it. Mm -hmm. um, and it really sort of came into play around the mid to late 90s that most states implemented screening for MCAD. Mm -hmm. um, and those kids do very well once once they're identified. Mm -hmm. um, and diseases such as this, where the outcomes are perfectly normal, are the mm -hmm. ones that we really have, have been the biggest success stories for newborn screening. There are still some of these disorders that, despite our best efforts to optimize outcomes, they're still clinical mm -hmm. manifestations of disease. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, the outcomes are much, much better in the era of newborn screening. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, well, thank you so much for explaining something that seems simple because usually we just kind of scan our eye down the sheet looking at results. Yes. Most newborn screens are normal, yes. so any parents out there can usually kind of relax that yeah. this is not a common thing um, that we're talking about. But it's nice to kind of dig in and know some of the history and some of the specifics and also to know where to get more information. Yeah. And know that we always have you guys to support us as backup on all these things that some of us don't always understand. You can always call us. We're happy to talk about them. So We'll link to some of the resources that you mentioned on our website, which is www.chop.edu slash pcppodcast. And thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash pcppodcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.